Oscar Poker. I ask you as a as a sharp. No, the you're, answer. You're like the sharpie at the racetrack with your racetrack sheet. You know the whole game. So I'm, come on, just give me something to hope for. Anything that's a surprise, other than the horrible, inevitable fate that is a going to envelop the Oscars on Sunday. The the, the, the game is basically it's over. And I, please tell me it's not and I'll and I'll take hope. I, I will feel better about <laughs> everything. Um I think what I realized about the Oscars finally is that and this, you know, this isn't fair to the Daniels and it isn't fair to anybody involved in that production because they're sort of taking the brunt of this and, and I mean what what it is is it's people get a, a tremendous high like a rapture a religious rapture when they make history at the oscars at, uh, at any award show it feels so, like w- w- when michelle michelle yo is probably going to win best actress over kate blanchett and when she wins they're going to stand on their feet they're going to be sobbing hysterically crying and they're going to have this feeling inside mm-hmm. of them that maybe people felt in the 60s or 70s at Woodstock when they were dropping acid and they were listening to some song about the war or peace or whatever it was. I didn't live through Woodstock or the 60s, so I don't know. But, you know, that that feeling that they all had that what people get on the right, they get in church, they get in a, a, you know, a revival. And they join hands with the people in the church and they, they pray to God or whatever, and they, they all feel this thing together. And that's mm-hmm. what the awards have become. It's, it's like as a religious gathering. If you watch the Spirit Awards there today, apparently, which I totally forgot about, um, you'll see that, that, that every time somebody gets on stage, it's going to be some sort of sermon about ideology, about their religion their awakening awokening you know and and everybody Uh will applaud and everybody will feel it you know it really does feel like to them you know it's woodstock but it's without the drugs sex and wildness and freedom it's more the opposite it's punitive and suspicious and paranoid and exacting and strident you know because it is so mm. much about us versus them, us versus the oppressors, and the oppressors in their mind are seventy five percent of the American public. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so in a sense, for them, what they're going to be getting at this awards ceremony at the Oscars is that religious rapture when when the movie wins and when they see history made. Like when they watched Coda win last year, it was the same thing. It was like, oh my god, I can't believe an all-deaf cast is winning Best Picture. And it was a rapture for them. Mm. They were on their feet. Mm-hmm. They went, you know, what? what is going to top that? What movie winning, what performance winning, whether it's Cape Blanchett or Top Gun or anything, what's, what's going to top that rapturous feeling that they will have? Nothing. An all-Asian cast in which the only white person is, a, is an ugly, neurotic, pissy IRS agent. Yeah. But but it's so 2023, isn't it? Like it, it really does. In that way, it is a a a, a good movie to, to serve as a time capsule because it really does show what this group of people, what this community is all about. It defines who they are. It just doesn't define everybody like the Oscars used to. You know, it doesn't even come close. Mm-hmm. Like Top Gun Maverick is is the best reviewed film of the year. 
It has the highest audience rating of any movie that I've seen in the last very, you know, I don't know how long it's been, but it made the most money, $700 million. It's a movie everybody knows and loves, and it's not winning Best Picture. Like, I was watching this, I don't know if I told you this, but I was watching this, um, this video of this guy who, I think I told you this already, so forgive me if I'm repeating it, but maybe I haven't said it on the podcast, but... Um, he camps in his car and his truck all around the, the country. He's got a huge following on YouTube. He's really cute. He's this young guy named Mav. And he has in he is mm-hmm. in Japan right now, camping in Japan. And he went to this remote fishing village to buy some uh, food from this butcher. And the guy doesn't speak English. He only speaks Japanese, obviously, and Mav doesn't speak with him. And he asks him, what's your name? And he goes, Maverick. And the guy says, oh, Top Gun, Top Gun. <laughs> <You> know, <it's laughs> like, that's funny. Even in this remote yeah. fishing village. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that that's what we're dealing with here. <laughs> like, that, that movie should be winning, obviously, because, you know, it, it definitely is. I mean, look, I don't think it's a masterpiece, but so what? You know, that's what, not what this is supposed to be about. I made this point with a friend, a critic friend yesterday, that um, uh, he was uh, telling me that um, I'm not a huge fan of Operation Fortune, the new Guy Ritchie film that just opened Friday. And he basically said it's formulaic and and cynical. Uh, And I said, yeah, yeah, but lots of movies are formulaic. You know what's a really good formula film? I mean, very, very well done, but follows the formula right down to the uh, Top Gun Maverick. I said, mm-hmm. "Yep, you're right. I, I, you got me there." But you know what? It's very sincere. There's a, there's an emotional sincerity about the thing. Yes, it's an act. Yes, Jerry Bruckenheimer marketing act. But it does feel you can let yourself think this is sincere. This is not, you know, cynicism. It's it's sincere as far as it goes. And uh, and there is a difference between a, a movie that sells. You know, this is my heart. Here it is, right on my sleeve. And you can call me full of shit and say, I'm just trying to sell a movie and make money. Okay, I'm not going to. But I mean it while you're watching, while you're sitting in that theater. I really do mean this. And you and you wind up do accepting it. It's more or less but it, it, okay. It, it also reminds me of Jaws in 1975 because you're coming mm-hmm. out of an era of malaise, of depression, a Watergate, right? The president just resigned. And the war in Vietnam bummed everybody out and there's high inflation and the the whole movement on the left is deflating and dying. The Manson murders happen. Everything is, but people are very depressed and the movies reflect that, that they're wonderful films, but they're dark and they're full of anti-heroes and what makes them great, of course. But here comes this movie out of the blue with a guy, a a New York City cop, a normal dad with a normal family. Uh, who shoots the, the the shark and blows it up at the end. And everybody just mm-hmm. lost their minds. And because mm-hmm. people were sick of feeling like losers. And the movie told them, showed them something that they felt that they didn't even know that they wanted or needed. That's what Top Gun mm-hmm. did. Top Gun showed us at a time when we, all of us, felt so down, so demoralized, so depressed. And you watch this movie within 10 minutes of it. He's on the treadmill running. He's getting in his his uh rock his um plane and mm-hmm. he's going to achieve Mach 10 and everybody just sits up in their seat and they feel this thing about it they're like what is that feeling i haven't felt that in a really long time for this movie and top gun manages that all through the whole film and and in my opinion the reason it hit like it did 
is because it, it was the movie that we didn't know we needed. But once we watched it, you know, you could feel that euphoria that, you know, we've been long missing in, in everything that we see on TV or movies or anywhere else. Everything's a lecture. Right. Everything's depressing. Everything's, you know, dark and painful. Um, and even mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. everywhere all at once is agony to sit through. You know, it's, it's it, it, any movie that takes you three hours to get through, which it took me. It took me. I, I needed three to four breaks just to clean my head out and reassess and think about it. And then I went back into it kind of, you know, after I've had, you know, it's, 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 it was I could not stay with that film. And I know there are others who have definitely had the same experience. That is not a, a sign of, of vitality and intrigue. And, and entertainment that most of us understand to be entertainment. That's that's a sign of a struggle to sit through. It's a mm-hmm. struggle to sit through it and to try to comprehend it. Yeah, it is. But, yeah. you know, you understand that there... Okay, so in my, in my wildest dreams, somehow mm-hmm. Top Gun would win um, Best Picture. But I'm not holding out hope because, I mean, it did win... I just got an email from Tom O'Neill that said that all these embargoed lists for these awards are, mm-hmm. in, you know, a lot of people are cheating at Gold Derby on the contest because they're getting these winners in advance. So he's mm-hmm. shut down a bunch of contests because um, because of cheating. So uh, well, I'm not sure what you're saying. You're saying that Gold Derby members uh, who are putting their fingers, their damp fingers to the wind, and when they are find out through these early uh, you know, tip tip sheet winners that makes them feel better about voting for something because it's already been ratified by the Writers Guild or the direct or the editors. Is well, that what you mean? It, I, I don't know about the the Gold Derby users, the people who use the site, not the oh, experts, okay. not not people like me, but they're they're getting their hands on early winners, so they're predicting it okay. and gaming yeah. the system so that they come out winners even though they cheated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. All right, so what about the uh, Writers Guild? Is there something in there that's a, a surprise, since you have seen that also? Well, the only surprise at the Writers Guild would be if... No, I haven't seen it. I didn't get the Writers oh, you Guild. Haven't? No, I wish. I wish I could get it. Anybody who has it, please send it my way. Um, I don't have okay. the Writers Guild list. Um, but that's mm-hmm. the only hope for Top Gun, is if it somehow manages to win an adapted screenplay there um, against women talking. And if it does that, mm-hmm. then it has a chance of winning Best Picture. But if it doesn't, then the chances are very, very slim. Isn't women talking presumed as that's kind of a tokenism to the Me Too community that it's supposed to win the Writers Guild or the best uh, adapted screenplay in the Oscars yeah. and also the Writers Guild? I think so. I think I think so. They don't, okay. you know, there's been a lot of news lately that women have been not doing as well. There's so many, it's just mm-hmm. the same as 2019. There's so many mm-hmm. movies by women this year that were ignored, like she said, The Woman mm-hmm. King, you know, and, and, and so all the mm-hmm. pressure is mounting, and I think that's why. Ordinarily, I don't think this movie would win that award because I don't think mm-hmm. a lot, enough people like it, you know, but I think in this case, they like her, and so she'll get the win. Um, I'd like to switch the topic. Okay, I know it's depressing, right? (laughs) Because you haven't told me about any surprises. I said, I begged you, tell me about 
potential real surprise that would make me and you and other people in our in our corner if you will uh, would feel good about and you basically don't have any surprises no i I can tell you i can tell you some potential (laughs) surprises i don't know if you feel good about them or not but i um there's a sign a chance that andrea riseborough could win best actress in a surprise um because okay that's interesting now can you tell me where that comes from well it's it's the idea that uh, Blanchett and Yo are two strong performances coming in t- to the competition, and that they're going to split the vote. And the Riseborough faction, which is a strong enough faction for her to get in in the first place, votes mm. and they dominate. Like Chariots of Fire won the year that Reds and On Golden Pond were competing against each other. They split the vote, okay. allowing Chariots of Fire to win. Um, Adrian Brody won for The Pianist when uh, uh, Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt was up against Daniel Day-Lewis for Gangs of New York. Lincoln? Oh, Gangs of New York, right. Mm-hmm. But that's sort yep. of a different case because people really loved The Pianist. But mm-hmm. that's that's a surprise I could see happening. Um, that, that was possibly, I'm not exaggerating here, one of the single biggest contact time moments i've ever felt from any oscar telecast any and that's when these pianists started winning all this stuff and it was like one after another i said this it got better and better people were like amazed when when polanski won that was astonishing i know and i thought wow this is uh, this is one of the most enjoyable because it's completely unexpected at least on my part yeah, and, me too. Uh, because given that he had, you know, I remember it was one of the he, first movies that I was like strongly advocating for at the time, and I wrote mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff about him and his performance. I actually predicted he would win in a split okay. surprise, and so I was kind of excited that I got that right. But um, mm-hmm. and it was a good movie. It's weird because the nobody really liked Gags of New York, and nobody really liked Chicago all that much. They liked it okay. But so people really did think that there was a chance the pianist could pull it through in the end um, for the top prize. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I just any surprise because it it's so I mean, the 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 network or the the handicapping community is so exacting and so invasive and, and, and <laughs> relentless me. that there's almost nothing to really to, but surprises are are the mm-hmm. the mother's milk of people like myself. Just anything that that uh, you know overwhelms. And when the predicted winners come along, it's just total flatline depression. It's just awful. Well, I um, stat, from a stats perspective, I can't see that there being any surprises this year that are major. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, again, like there are a lot of weird things that happened this year that have never happened before. Like, there mm. are totally different winners at the BAFTA than at the Oscars. It's like two different... Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, yeah. it's like a tale of two cities, right? Two totally different realities. Mm. Two totally mm-hmm. different sets of winners. And and right. we've never seen that before. Like, the BAFTA gave only editing to everything, everywhere, all at once. Gave all yeah. of their top prizes to All Quiet on the Western Front. Um And... and Barry Keegan and Carrie Condon won in the supporting categories, like completely shocking. Don't did, but didn't you see that as a regional, uh, nationalistic vote? I mean, I did. I mean, usually if there's anyone <clears throat> from the British Isles who's 
nominated uh, and they happen to win at the BAFTAs, it's never too surprising when that happens. Well, no, but they because, what they did was, and I'll tell you my theory. I, first of all, I wish that the United States had the same kind of nationalistic pride that they have. And I do. I wish well, that we could <laughs> we could love our industry, you mm-hmm. know, and our American made products more than we do. Um mm-hmm. but I do think it was a backlash for them. I think they were pissed off that they had been um you know, overridden with these committees for 2 years or whatever and it annoyed them. And so they weren't going to mm-hmm. pander even a little bit to any of this stuff. They were just going to pick what they yeah. liked. That's what I think they did mm-hmm. because, um, you know, like they they could have given their award to uh, Angela Bassett, you know, um, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about Cannes. Okay. So what's your deal? Where are you staying and, and what are you looking forward to seeing and, and who are you staying with and everything like that? I'm staying with Jordan Rumi. We have been a pair ever since uh, Anne Hornaday stopped going. Uh, and it used to be me and Han- Anne Hornaday in this uh, lovely uh, Napoleon-era uh, apartment, which was basically a duplex. It was my the best, the best uh, can years for me. Uh, now we're uh, basically we've been staying from the same the, the same family that rented us uh, a place. But uh, this is uh, something I uh, don't feel that good about. But we brought in an extra person. And there's something about the extra person that the mother of Julienne, who didn't, uh, who was our friend for years and years, she didn't like, uh, she felt that we were disrespecting, there are too many people. Uh, so they, she basically said, you're done, you're out. So we're not going to rent to you anymore. So we had, we lost this great place. And we just managed to find a place in the Palm Beach area, which is on the Canizade, huge crescent and there, the left side of the crescent is the uh, Suquet and, and the Palais and the, the Marina, the, the Place Maritime. And our place is way on the other side, uh, which means uh, basically an excellent rent. I'm delighted with the rent. But we do have to uh, get uh, go through a 25 to 30-minute walk to get to the Palais, which is not a disaster. It's obviously healthy and good. good. But, you know, I, I know what's going to happen after a couple of days. I'm going to start to feel... Uh, you know, God, you know, it's late. You know, I've seen a movie that just got out at 1130 and I got to get back to to Palm Beach. So basically I want to have a bicycle. I'm going to, I intend to rent a bicycle. They're about 10 euros a day and I just want to, and it's very flat. So it's a nice, nice, easy ride. And so I'm going to do that. And there's, there are buses I'm told. So that's the solution. But the place itself is is lovely, and and you have told me about Palm Beach. It has a it's all its own little village in a way, community. So it's uh, it's it's very nice. I, yeah. I love the idea. I used to walk so. down there a lot just to get an experience of sitting on the beach with families. The best thing about Cannes, in my opinion, has always been the working class experience of of visiting there. Uh, when I stayed in Juan Le Pen, why, why would you walk all the way down to that? That's a pretty hefty hike it's like a half hour hike why would you do that i don't think it was that i don't think it was that far i don't know i just like the vibe of real people who live there like that that was more interesting to me than than being around a bunch Mm. of film twitter people you know hanging out in the lounge i love just watching the the french people do their thing Uh, that's what i love about Cannes. it's actually like just a working town it's like las vegas you know las vegas has the Mm -hmm. whole outskirts of it that's far from the strip where people are just living out their daily lives um so we think that killers. No, of... there's a. 
Go ahead. We think the Killers of the Flower Moon is going, right? There's no question about it. No question. Okay. Um, uh, it, it, Variety says it's not 100%, and they just were obliged to say that for a certain political reasons. It's There's no question about it. All it's right. going there. I just hope it's not the because of a film. As Wes Anderson uh, said, uh, a friend told him, it's never, you never want to be the opener. It's an opening night film. There's always something a little bit weak, a little bit populist, a little bit, you know, not hip enough. There's all, you never want to be the opening night, or you want to be, you know, the second or third night or the fourth night. Um, never the opening night. So, so if they make it an opening nighter, it means that it also it will. I think there's kind of some kind of hard and fast rule that if a film opens the Cannes Film Festival, it has to actually open in theaters soon after. And I don't think that. Uh, it's, it's is it Amazon or Disney? Oh, Apple. It's Apple. I don't think Apple wants that to happen, so it probably will not be a um, opening matter. So, but I'm very disappointed, as you may have read, that Chris Nolan's um, uh, Oppenheimer film, which yeah. I'm, I think is almost certainly going to be pleasing and stirring to someone like myself, to yourself, and anyone who's got a cultivated, uh, you know, take on movies. Uh, it's not going to be really something that you're under 35s are going to be that thrilled about because they don't have an investment or recollection of when nuclear weapons and the potential nuclear holocaust was a real thing and it kind of defines the nightmares of, of, of people who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So that I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a huge hit. All right. Frankly. Stop the presses. Think... Stop the presses. I've got to read huh? you this article I just saw break at Variety. Oh, okay. never mind. I see that it's old. It was written February 26th. Never mind. Oh, oh, okay. I, I just, it got it on Twitter for some reason. It, here's the headline. Bonnie and yeah. Clyde and everything everywhere. Sometimes the Oscar season game changer is beaten by the game. The, there's, and I'll read you his first two paragraphs. If you think I should cut this out and it's boring, then just let me know. There's a film in the Oscar Best Picture race that has younger Academy voters and a new generation of film critics excited, while their older peers in both camps appear more what one might call agitated. It's a fairly neat generational split. The film's anarchic spirit and unorthodox mix of genre filmmaking and biting social commentary is seen as daring and refreshing by its young fans, while its older detractors are scratching their heads over weird tonal shifts from comic and rollicking one minute, serious and reflective in the next, shifting from spoofy genre tropes to questioning of societal norms. The year is 1968, and the film is Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. And then he wrote, but you'd be forgiven if you found the, the paragraphs above an apt description of this year's Producer Guild winner, Everything Everywhere, on it, all at once. Just as Bonnie was a landmark film in Academy history, causing massive gnashing of teeth over its real value and meaning as a watershed in both its graphic ultraviolence and its unconventional take on the standard-issue cops and robbers pictures that Hollywood had been routinely manufacturing for decades, everything has skeptics tut-tutting about how magic bagel portals and hot dog fingers got into the Oscar race in the first place. So he just goes on. It's like, I, I, I'm like... Comparing Who those, that? Stephen Gatos. Who's the author? That's not bad, and I uh, I love the idea of comparing the two. And he is correct 
that Bonnie and Clyde was the, uh, you know, the, the, very much the unconventional film. But even Jack L. Warner, the, the yeah, but there's, Warner Brothers, uh, didn't really care for. I mean, hello, huh? there's nothing unconventional about everything everywhere all at once. There's nothing unconventional about that. That, that, that speaks exactly to their sensibilities. I think he's wrong. It doesn't speak to my sensibilities. It, I know, but I'm, I'm as, saying that I don't think it's, it's not a good comparison because Bonnie and Clyde, Bonnie and Clyde yeah. is a, uh, you know, is like almost, you know, yes, it was, it was uh, provocative for its time, but it wasn't sausage fingers. It wasn't unwatchable. Bonnie and Clyde is a movie you sit down to watch and you can't stop watching because it has two beautiful stars and a compelling storyline. Everything everywhere all at once isn't that movie. Everything everywhere is a, is a is a um a a video game. You know, like I just don't yeah, I don't yeah. agree with his premise because I don't really like these two movies being compared. I don't think they compare themselves. I don't think you can say that well, everything everywhere. Well, it, it was owned and and more the the people who were on more of the six late sixties cutting edge sensibilities were more embracing of Bonnie and Clyde. It did. It, Bonnie and, and Clyde I, is not. Off, but... It's not. I'm sorry, but it's not even Janet Maslin. That's how I saw it. She tweeted. She said, "Here's your reminder that everything everywhere has nothing to do is nothing like Bonnie and Clyde," and she's right. I mean, you can't compare these two movies. Bonnie and Clyde spoke for a whole generation. Everything Everywhere speaks for a very small community of hipsters. It's just not the same okay. thing. It doesn't have the same cultural impact um, as Bonnie and Clyde. But let me just look at the box office of that movie just for the hell of it. My point is that Bonnie everything everything Everywhere is an irritant. It's a movie you yes. can't. most people can't watch. Bonnie and Clyde was provocative, but it wasn't an irritant. It was in its own no, way. It was, it was it, you know, it was still. It wasn't like grotesque sausage fingers, Jamie Lee Curtis characters, you know. And it, but it did in, invite people to say, "You're you're not going to have any heroic figures here. These are people who are uh, maybe a little uh, oblivious to conventional morality in the '30s. Maybe they're angry about the about the depression, which is brought about by." The, the markets and, and people with, you know, wealth who mm -hmm. speculated too much. But there's a lot of anger. And that's what you recall the 30s was the time when there was a, a big surge of, of socialist thought and, and sympathy for, for communism. Uh, that's what got a lot of people in trouble later in the late 40s and 50s because they flirted with the idea uh, that the American system was rigged against working people and caused a lot of misery. And perhaps we needed some more of a social conscience right. uh, in in our economy, you know. So that's that was a pretty legitimate thing. All right. Well, I got. I, so I, I think he's wrong a hundred percent. Because here's the other thing: that year, okay, The Graduate was the number one box office success of all time. And I mean, of that year, it was number one, and it won Best Director. Guess what movie won Best Picture? In the Heat of the Night. Why did it win? Yeah, that's because right. it was about race and race. That's why everything everywhere is going to win, because that's what it's about. It's being driven by the same forces that put that movie in power. There might be a, a Bonnie and Clyde in this race, but it's more likely to be Tar or, mm -hmm. um, you know, Triangle of Sadness or something like that as a subversive movie. There's nothing subversive about everything everywhere all at once. It's a it's a giddy, happy little fantasy story, you know where everybody's yeah. happy at the end. Bonnie and Clyde was dark and subversive and, you know, 
was it was depressing. People were upset about it because of how graphic it was. People aren't upset about mm-hmm. everything everywhere. Everybody's gleefully celebrating it. It just won the SAG, the PGA, the DJ. Do you think that Bonnie and Clyde would have won all that back then? No way. It didn't, you know, because The Graduate was winning Best Director and In the Heat of the Night was winning Best Picture because it was about mm-hmm. satisfying this need for rewarding a film about race at that time. We're living through a very similar time, but everything everywhere isn't the Bonnie and Clyde. It's the front runner. It's in the heat it's, of the night. You know, it's, it's, it's not content wise, but the identification is uh, amongst the people who loved Bonnie and Clyde was that they were younger and they were they identified with uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway and that they were kind of kind of representative of uh, of younger people in the sixties. They were anti establishment, anti uh, you know, it's creating their own own rules in a way, you know. Making, yeah, but uh, but that's not kind of doesn't a, define so it, who these people are, Jeff. They've taken over all of culture. All of American culture. The only person that's talking about this movie in a negative way is you. You're the only person. <laughs> So it's it's. I'm this... the only person who's talking negatively about everything, everywhere, all at once. I, yeah. I know that there's like dozens, hundreds, thousands. I know, of but it's not the same thing. I... And, and Bonnie and Clyde was sitting on the edge. It was fringe. It was subversive. It wasn't popular in mainstream. Inside that, back then, everybody saw the movies. Graduate was the graduate was number one at the box office, right? This year, mm-hmm. because they've become so walled off from the rest of America. This, this, right. everything everywhere, it, it defines exactly who they are. He's wrong. That movie is yeah. as status quo as you can possibly get because of everything that it says, right? You're not she being act- specific, Sasha. You're not saying that when you say that it, it totally has all the power and it's not subversive. Yes. What you mean is within small confines of the industry in Los Angeles and New York and Toronto and whatnot, that's, that's a very fairly small community. Those people who swear by the whole mind mind meld the <laughs> mind delusion of wokeness that's that's the whole thing you know that's that it's not most people most people are as you say they're they're top gun fans and whatnot they're not particularly you know it's it's not a big thing there's there, it, it's, it's a it's, small it's, thing i know but it does it's not bonnie and clyde man no way that it is not a it's not a fringe movie at all i mean it's not a subversive exciting movie for young people that make them feel all sexy that's not what this movie is this is a a, a woke indoctrination movie this is a movie about yeah. older chinese yeah. traditional woman accepting her gay daughter it's it, it's if anything it's guess who's coming to dinner right guess who's coming mm-hmm. to dinner was the same year as in the heat of the night yeah. everything was about race and politics bonnie and clyde was mm-hmm. separate from that obviously and you can see why there's nothing separate about everything everywhere winning. It it is in keeping with all of the recent Oscar winners. Coda, okay. Parasite, Moonlight. Mm. It's you know, it's a movie about identity. That's why it's winning. Yeah. Now, if you no, sh- I, I I completely concur with you. You're right. Your assessment is correct. I'm just saying that uh, well we, we we were rehashing the same old thing. I just uh, but you know that this is a good topic uh, and it got our energy up. You should start with this. You should lead with a Stephen Gato's piece because it's it's All it's right. good. What he's saying uh, is, let me just clear this up. What he's saying is this this mm-hmm. year represents a generational divide. And and he's right because I think this is the year that um Pictures at a Revolution takes place. I think that Mark Harris's book about Pictures at a Revolution was this year. Yeah. 
So you have mm. you have um, in the heat of the night, the graduate. Guess who's coming to dinner? Cool hand Luke. Wait, let me look at best picture. That's not best picture. Hang on a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it that Mike Nichols won for the graduate. And I mean, what a great year for mm. movies. In Cold Blood was up for graduate. The graduate, like wow, really? Yeah. Like that's incredible. Mm. Um, that I mean, that does show you just how dark everything was back then. Okay, so here's best picture. In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Dr. Doolittle, and The Graduate. It mm. does show the generational divide with Dr. Doolittle and, I guess, In the Heat of the Night. And then you have these exciting maverick directors, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate. Um, and that is a, it does show a generational divide. But I'm just my point is that mm. In the Heat of the Night was the front runner. Everything Everywhere All at Once is the front runner. <clears throat> and that's why... It's in the heat of the night, and it's not Bonnie and Clyde. Tar is probably more like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, mm. it, it's just not. It's not an underdog. It is the front runner. It's won mm. a record number of TGA, PGA, and SAG. So it's not the. It's not the the outsider like Bonnie and Clyde. It just doesn't fit. Um, but it, that's a myopic mindset of that film is when against the contrasted with the entirety of american culture it is myopic it's very small it's very industry centric it's the it's the tony awards you know yeah. it's that whole way of looking at life so uh, no i agree with that i just don't think that that's representative of bonnie and clyde because you know bonnie and clyde okay. was such a huge cultural impactful moment like i was a kid then but i knew about that movie and everybody did like it. It was such an impactful thing that people still dress up in those costumes. And part of that is just how gorgeous Faye Dunaway and, and Warren Beatty are. You know, like remember it opened and uh, kind of died when it first opened, and uh, it was re-released in the fall, and then it caught on. But unless Warren Beatty had not gone to Jack Warner and begged him, literally almost begging him on his knees to re-release it. It was a different campaign, and that's when it caught on. The first, it, it fizzled right away. It, mm. did, it did not work. And the reviews, I recall, from, was it Bozzy Crowder, that it was uh, rather rancid and rather ugly. And, and what, well, what kind I'll of, tell you. you know, he, we're dealing with here. Box office, 1967. What? Number one, Graduate. Mm-hmm. For some bizarre yeah. reason, Gone with the Wind came back that year and made $64 million at number three. <laughs> Guess who's okay. coming to dinner? Number four, Bonnie and Clyde, number five. Mm-hmm. And In mm-hmm. the Heat of the Night, number 13. So in Cool Hand Luke, number 17. In Cold Blood, never number 18. So these movies, I mean, it's just incredible that... that they they mm. were in the theater and that they were making so much money. It's just and to Sir with Love is here at number nine. Um yeah. Valley of the Dolls, You Only Live Twice, The Dirty Dozen, like The Jungle Book. There's just such an array mm. of films um on yeah. offer. Like we're just we're just never gonna get that back. It's never coming back. I'd like to uh conclude with a, a thought that I've aired more than once on Hollywood elsewhere. And that's the fact that if you have any appreciation, any understanding of what really great cinema looks and feels like, the emotional payoffs, the the montage, the wonderful use of color and, and light and everything, you have to be an absolute fan of the second half 
to the ending of the first half. <laughs> if I'm not doing anything too complex, I've gone with the wind. Gone with the wind from <laughs> the Atlanta burning until I'll never be hungry again is a magnificent film. It really, really is. It's so well made, so rich and so full of sadness and feeling and, and, and kind of the romance of war and the horror of, of being bombarded and, and the destitution of the South. And yes, I know you're not allowed to say that there is anything bad about the South being whipped to its knees because of a horrific culture and of slavery, but it is still beautiful cinema. And this is what I think uh, illustrates, I think there's something really truly diseased. It's one thing to say that what that movie exudes what it says about romanticizing the South is awful by our standards. And I completely, I think anybody of conscience who knew anything about what Gone with the Wind really was saying, but even back then understood that that was, you know, it's definitely a sugar coating of, of, of Southern uh, plantation culture and, and a com- it completely ignores the, the ugliness of, of slavery, but it's still magnificent cinema. And if you can't at least say, look, it's really good cinema, but I, I find it abhorrent for what it's saying. But nobody's saying that. They just say it's abhorrent, period. Nobody will talk about how good it is from the Atlanta, burning of Atlanta to the end. It's magnificent. So, well, there are so many issues on this that. particular topic that we can't discuss at all, which is that I'm reading a book about the Civil War right now and and, uh, and the Confederacy in the South. And yes, a lot mm-hmm. of it was based on slavery, and that's a horrifying thing. But there was a lot about it that, you know, wasn't just about slavery, the kind of uh, way that the, the, the culture was and, and stuff. And so if anybody wants to preserve any of it, it means they're a racist, you know, even like mm-hmm. recipes or, you know, and that's how they feel about Gone with the Wind, too. Look, I understand that anger, and I totally understand why people would want to throw it away, how they made, like, happy slaves or whatever. Um, and they only told the story from, really from the point of view of the white people. It's absolutely true, 100%. However, mm-hmm. it's a kind of a beautiful metaphor for the South because she's a pain in the ass, right? She Scarlet, yeah. you get through that whole movie about this unlikable character, you know, and he leaves her. Selfish bitch. She's mm-hmm. a, she's a, just a terrible woman, right? And and that's the one mm-hmm. of the reasons why I don't really like watching that movie because of that. It's like I go through all this and I have to deal with this woman and she's so mean to Rhett and he's such a nice guy and um and he leaves her. So that to me is such a beautiful metaphor of the Civil War, everything that happened, you know. And he represents the side that just said, you know, screw you, we're out of here, you know. Yeah. And um mm-hmm. it's 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 such a popular movie. Like no movie has ever even come close to that movie in terms of bringing people out. Every time when I was doing this box office research, I was doing this movie just kept getting Mm. re-released and it just kept making money every time that it did. Like no other movie can touch gone with the wind box office wise. I um, have said also this a few times that it's, there's really no, um, you can easily say that this is really a parable about deprivation during the 1930s when this country went through the, the worst economic period of its history, except for possibly the 08, 09. That's, that was also a pretty awful 2010. But in the 1930s, people really they didn't have Social Security. It was a truly tough and, and rugged and brutal time for 
obviously the Okies and for people living hand to mouth, but everybody had to, you know, pull in their belts and, and just make do. Uh, it was a parable about the economic depression. I think it was about, and it was really, Ben Hecht said this in so many words, it's it's really about gumption. And, and it doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily the nicest people, the most admirable, the most beautiful, the most lovable, but people have to get tough when things get rough. And she, as abhorrent as she is in terms of her selfishness, she's a tough person. And this is what is unnecessary. It's necessary to, to survive sometimes. You have to be that person. And um, that's what I think stirs people. You know, when, when, when the going gets tough, people have to get really going and it's uh you know it's not about virtue it's about uh, being a good person or a nice person it's about uh survival and and i think people respond to that it is a story about survival well and, no, and, and but it, nobody will do that no no and it's also it's, not... it's also in its own way like uh, bonnie and clyde in that it is two beautiful people look i I've said this many times, like a lot of going to the movies is just about staring up at beautiful people, and I think that if you put a movie like that. Gone with the Wind is like, I mean, for its time, technically speaking, like it's it's lavish. The costumes, the sets, the, you know, it goes on forever. It's just so, you know, delightful in a lot of ways. The downfall of Scarlett O'Hara, you know, watching that downfall. It's dramatic. It's interesting. It's a romance, you know. So You're talking about the second half of the first half, right? I'm just Atlanta talking about the end. The end. Well, I'm really talking. She doesn't downfall in part two at all. She goes. She 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 starts a business. You know, she she becomes wealthier. She meets rich. She gets even wealthier. There's no downfall in the second half. Oh it's yeah, the there is half. because no, the to me the second half is the real downfall because that's when you realize that there's nothing inside of her. She's a cipher. Oh yeah. Oh, you're talking about internal elements. Well, okay. sure. I'm talking about the the whole character arc. Like she's not successful. She's you know. She's miserable. And, and and that's what the whole movie, you know, but then of course it ends with if you as long as you have land, that's all and it, it is a very pro south mm-hmm. <laughs> pro south film, you know. Um yeah. So look, I understand people wanting to, you know, hate it for the rest of their lives. They could do that if they want, you know. Um I always think it's important. You mean to- people of color hate it is why they hate it. Because and I don't dispute and would never argue against their feeling that way. But they are also saying, I don't care how artful, how beautifully shot. I mean, I don't care about Ernest Haller's uh, cinematography. I don't care about the direction of that, uh, that of that huge scene where all the dead and wounded lying in the Atlanta railroad yard. I'm not, not I, all of it. You can throw it all out because it is um, you know, soft peddling and even romanticizing, really disgusting, mm. the, the culture of slavery. And I will that so throw that baby out with the bathwater, and I, I I think that indicates a lack of uh, maturity. Uh, life is complex. You can't just sometimes you can't just say throw it out. You have to say it's very good, but I really really don't like it. Okay, but you have to at least say it's very good. And they don't say that. They just say it's the symbolism of that movie has to be exterminated and washed away permanently. Yeah, I mean, it's I it's that... it's definitely not for us to tell people uh, of color how to feel about a movie like that. So, like, if my inclination is to say, which is what I believe, that we shouldn't be tearing down statues, we should always leave them there, leave our history there, leave a trace, don't erase the past like Orwell's uh, 1984, because then you'll never learn from the past. You have to remember things like the gulags with Stalin, you know? But 
if I'm a person of color, if I'm a black person, I don't know what that feels like, you know, to have that still there. Does that does that really make me feel like I'm never going to be a successful person? Because I personally think that the the woke white people have done way more harm in terms of um, making them feel like they they need extra help and that they'll never achieve anything and that they're going to be oppressed forever than a statue would, you know. But mm. it's not for me to say. So. You know, I, I, Nikki Haley was, uh, was at least sensible enough to understand that they, Confederate flag cannot fly anymore because it is a symbol of of slavery and and racism, right. and um, I, I don't disagree with that at all. And I actually don't think that it's that great an idea to have uh, statues of Stonewall Jackson and even Robert E. Lee and other great generals, respected generals of the Confederate effort. Because uh, I think we do have to kind of—I uh, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, what I, what we all have a problem with, is people trashing Abraham Lincoln, and and saying that his name has to be taken off an elementary school in the San Francisco. That's where the craziness comes in. Well, and that's—I think that it's this one. idea of you draw just—you're just drawing a line in a different place. And I don't know mm-hmm. that I agree with that. And the reason is that I'm reading this book, and I think that I'm pretty sure that Robert E. Lee. I have to go back and read mm-hmm. this again. But mm-hmm. I think from what I hear about this book, he was actually someone who didn't agree with the Confederacy before the war. His politics were for the other side. But at, when the war began and he was called to it, he had to take the side and fight for his side with his country. So I just think that... So he was an anti-slavery? I don't think he was... A, no, I don't think he was an abolitionist, you know, because the war between the two sides was so extreme by then it was like it was like right now i mean it was really like to be they called them black republicans they were black republicans who were abolitionists people like lincoln and um and so it was one of these things where just like now how haughty and angry people are with the other side how they would just never be seen with them regardless of what they actually believe mm-hmm. it's just a tribal thing so I don't think he was, but I just found it interesting personally that he's being treated like the worst of the worst when he was only, you know, he wasn't really a guy who was one of these, you know, one of these terrible, like all the de- the, the Democrats, the Southern Democrats back then that fought for the Fugitive Slave Act, Slave Act and all that. They were t- just terrible people who did not believe mm-hmm. that slaves were human beings. But I just thought it was interesting that Robert E. Lee is blamed as like the worst of the worst when he wasn't even really somebody who was passionately involved in that cause. He was just called to duty mm, and he mm. took it, you know. Mm. So do you so think we I'm should just, saying, just really quickly talk about um, Scott Adams while we're on this subject? Sure. So, he's dead. So he, <laughs> and he, he's basically he's he's he'll never be, uh, you know, he's he'll be. He's been cast out, and what he has done, he apparently is wealthy, so he's starting this Scott Adams, uh, you know, uh, renegade side of his own, looking for subscribers. And I think that uh, if people were to look at what the guy is really like, he's basically a right a right of center provocateur. But he and and what they're saying, uh, what has been claimed, is that the Rasmussen poll, which is what he was talking about when he said that he wants to stay away from the 
what, 40 to 45 percent of the uh, African-Americans who responded to this poll said they, they they really don't like white people. They don't want to deal with them. They, get, they actually kind of hate them. <clears throat> he, he said, basically, I don't want to deal with those people if they're going to be about hate. And um, I don't see that as um, it's unfortunate that he doesn't have more skill and, and more of an understanding that saying what he said is yeah. going to get him killed. And I, I don't know what's wrong with him, why he doesn't. Uh, decide to hedge his bets and be a little more careful but it is fair to say that you know you don't want to be hated upon and you're not particularly interested in being you know in meshing yourself with a culture in which there's a lot of hate for people who are who are white from european uh, descent descendants but that's the way it is we all know that white people are primarily you know the the default villain of our time right now yeah uh, they are you but know. the thing is that, that he said that was wrong and that he should have apologized for. Like, I'm not somebody who supports the withering apology ever. But I think in this case, and I understand him because I've occasionally drifted in on one of his lives. See, he, he, he does these lives every morning with his. And a lot of times he just says stuff off the top of his head. Now, I've had conversations with people, with you, with anybody where, you know, we don't necessarily mm. say something out loud that we would necessarily think that people were going to scrutinize us for or anything. And in mm -hmm. his case, he's doing that, and he says this thing like he does with everything else, just off the top of his head, where he didn't really think about it too much. But when mm -hmm. you when you when you excise that from everything else he said, and you put it on Twitter, it magnifies that particular part of it to the to the, to a great extent. But the problem is that what he said was, "Get away from all black people. Black people are a hate group." And the thing is, it's just not fair because to. to in anybody to to paint everybody with the same brush like that so what he said he shouldn't have said he should have or apologize i didn't mean to say that i'm sorry i don't think that that would help him necessarily like because we're living in a time where everybody is considered racist until proven innocent otherwise and, yeah and they're yeah. just waiting for you to say one thing one thing that they can prove that person is is a racist and they can't let it go because you know, everybody has to like show that they they disagree with what he said by firing him, by canceling his things. But what they're saying is, we found a racist, we found a witch. And the thing mm -hmm. is, I don't think he is a racist. I don't. I don't think he is. I think he just said a stupid thing that he shouldn't have said. But I don't know how you get yourself out of something like that. You know. I don't know why he couldn't summon the discipline to say, amongst those folks in the African-American community who are very virulently uh, uh, hateful of, of white culture, white people. Uh, I don't particularly uh, want to, uh, you know, know them. Uh, I don't particularly want to be, uh, you know, back and forthing with them. But I basically, uh, you know, understand, as most of us do, that this is not a majority. And there, most people are, are willing to kind of, you know, refresh and, and and go on and kind of redefine themselves and not be bound by pe previous hateful statements. So I I just don't want to deal with hate in general. I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, obviously, uh, Steven Spielberg just recently said that, you know, I've never seen or felt uh, anti-Semitism the way it is right now with people hands on hips and unapologetic, unapologetically spouting anti-Jewish uh, anti sentiments, anti-Semitism, you know. I mean, yeah. it's out there. So I just think, why didn't he just say, 
that that hate as a as a as a as a, as a staple of, of 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 the left and right is really not very. Uh, it's nothing I want anything to do with. Why didn't you say it? Put it that way. Who would say that that's wrong? Nobody would. But he said well, it. Well, I, I don't know why he, he said it. I, I don't know him well enough because I don't know what his shtick is. I don't know why he would say such a blatantly stupid thing like that um, on, on live mm-hmm. on live stream. And I don't know how it ever got found its way out into Twitter. You know, mm-hmm. somebody was obviously watching him and waiting for something like that. Um, but I know he was reacting. You know, if you're on, it doesn't matter. Like, because I follow both right wing and left media. So I see the mm-hmm. stuff that is sent out into the churn to get people angry mm-hmm. on the right and on the left. And on the right, they're constantly shown videos over and over again of black people beating up white people and doing some terrible thing. Like, And it's not that they just mm-hmm. show that act of violence. They'll show any act of violence. But the people on the left never show those videos at all. They don't show any violence unless it's perpetrated by white people against people of color. They love the, yeah. the Karen videos, you know. They love anything mm-hmm. where they can show people being racist. That really does well on their side, you know. So I like Karen videos myself. I think those are really funny. I, I do love too. watching. I, them. I think they're funny too, yeah. unless it's a person <laughs> with a mental, obvious mental illness, and then it's like not really nice. But I agree that mm-hmm. they're they're hysterical most of the time. Um, but the two sides are just making each other angry and teaching each other to hate each other, and in this weird way, I've never felt more racism in this country than I do right now. Not white yeah, against black, but against mm. white people and this, this desire to separate us and divide us by race and pit us against each other and identify each other by race. and define, I think I find it all very bizarre and unhealthy for people, especially young people that have to grow up with that. Have you uh, ever watched cop videos of cops pulling over people Sometimes. driving erratically, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah. <clears throat> there are these cop videos, they come up and basically there's a whole strain of them in which uh, the people driving erratically or suspiciously are people of color. And when they do uh, ask for their, you know, get out and, you know, or, or, or they drive off, you know, um, there's this whole thing of like, uh, you know, I, I, I am not going to talk with you. I'm not going to deal reasonably with you. I feel threatened. I'm I'm actively considering the possibility that I might die because of this encounter. That's an endemic uh, conviction feeling amongst people of color who've seen all the horrible moments where guys get, you know, they decide to run for it stupidly and they get shot, you know, ridiculously. It's awful. So that whole thing is out there. And that's part of what defines uh, certainly amongst white cops and black cops, as we just saw in uh, in the Memphis thing. Yeah. Right. Those yeah. guys, you know, that is it's like a really brutal thing, and that's uh, it's a really you know, hard it's, job. It's... And and what I don't like about the left, and I don't see it as much on the right, maybe because I have a diverse news diet, but on the left, mm-hmm. they really are got tunnel vision. They really only show a very specific type of narrative. And and people believe that narrative and then they believe it so much that you have to like when you're talking to somebody on the left, it's almost like you're talking to somebody from a, a religious sect that, you know, there are certain yeah. things you can't talk about without offending them. I think the last guy that I talked to said to me something like he's a good friend of mine, but he's so in the bubble of the left. And he said, how are you feeling with Elon Musk taking over Twitter? Um, you know, is it really with all <laughs> 
<laughs> I was just like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not, I don't really care. Like, hello, it doesn't mm-hmm. bother me, you know? So I just thought, you know, that's what their fears on the left is, is 10 times worse than what's happening over on the right. Uh, in my opinion, mm. in terms of what they see on Twitter. But I do think that if you see a bunch of videos of black people beating up white people, like Scott Adams saw probably before he reported that thing, you're going to get an idea like that. Remember that video I showed you of that kid pounding on that teacher where he jumped yeah. on her and she beating her face and everything. And she, like, she took some kind of a device from him. Maybe it was his phone or something, but he just lost it. And he's a big guy. He's like uh-huh. uh, one of those, you know, six foot eight guys. And he really, really clobbered her yeah. and knocked her out and yeah. put her in the hospital. And and so yeah. people on the left would never see that video like that. That's what happened in 2020. They would not show any of the violence from the summer. And, and then over on the right, you're seeing all this. I, I, I understand why they don't want to show it on the left, because they don't want people to get the idea that all black people are violent criminals, you know. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's like, are you really going to not show what's happening in this country? Like to to be that selective about it, that only report on shootings if a white guy does it, you know, only report on hate you know, crimes. Thing, you know, one thing I don't have clear in my head is when Adams said that uh, that uh, CNN's. Uh, um, Oh God, I hate it when I when I blank. But he just got in trouble on CNN this morning for saying that uh, women are out of their prime. John uh, Don Lemon, the... Don Lemon, huh? Don yes. Lemon, yeah. And he said that Lemon uh, had said that he kind of prefers being wealthier because he doesn't like the crime levels in a in a you know in a primarily black neighborhood, and that he feels better about his lifestyle now because he's not he's living you know in a white type neighborhood and he says there's not as much crime you know that's the kind of thing you're not really supposed to say despite whatever the statistics might be you're not supposed to say that kind of stuff don lemon included but uh, and i don't know what the real truth of it is but you know and, and if you make the assumption well if it's mostly a black neighborhood there's going to be more crime i don't want to think that i don't want to necessarily go there but maybe it's true i i, I you know but i know that if you do uh, even flirt with that concept you're you're pretty much uh, a bad person. Well, all so. I know is that I don't like the the left the left's idea that we shouldn't we shouldn't report on or try to help the people who live in those neighborhoods and keep them protected from crime. And in fact, yeah. in the 90s that's what the crime bill crime bill was about. It wasn't about protecting white people. It was about protecting black kids and families from gang violence and they were desperate yeah. and they needed some help. And now it's been turned around mm-hmm. into this racist thing that, that hurt the black community because it put all these people in jail. Well, who has to suffer mm-hmm. for all this? The people who have to suffer are the people who live in those neighborhoods who are just, I just saw a shooting that would never get reported on the left by that like four people were killed. A little two-year-old girl was shot in this. It was like in St. Louis or something. And they don't report mm-hmm. on it because they think it's racist and they won't help them because they think the cops are racist. And it's like, who's going to help them? Who's going to mm-hmm. help them? Like, do we have to put every single state in charge of Republicans for them to do anything about crime? You know, aren't they going to yeah. help these poor families in these cities? Anyway. All Good. right. So we'll try to, the Oscars are, are March 12th. Yeah. Uh, we'll probably yeah. try to get in one more podcast before they air. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll see how this weekend, I, I think everything everywhere all at once winning it. If it wins every award this weekend, then, you know. But it only has it could win the Writers Guild, the Editors Guild, 
and then cinematography we'll see who wins that award um that's also this weekend. And, and also the spirits. The spirits, the spirits are, today, right? are today at two o'clock my time. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you can stand watching, them. we know which way. That's the Branch Davidian. We know which way they're going to go. Just, so there's no. Just remember what I told it. you about them and the rapture. And when you watch it, tell me if you don't agree with me on that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You should do a running dialogue of everything that every winner says. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'll catch you later. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Oscar Poker. You can find more of Jeffrey Wells's writing at hollywood-elsewhere.com. Sasha Stone is at awardsdaily.com.
Say 